Okay, sitting in front of you is a handout that is a printout of my thoughts on Luke chapter 8 that the bishop had asked me to draft in the study the conference is conducting on the Gospel of Luke at this time. Uh, they're up to, uh, think, chapter 10 now. Uh, so we are a few chapters behind. That's no big deal. But I, he had asked me to do the lessons on 7, 8, and 9. And so here's mine on chapter 8. Last week we discussed... Uh, Two, two of these segments here. The first one is the women of faith, and the second is the message of faith shrouded in parables. So let's go ahead and review those real quickly. First note that in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we begin with what in its cultural context must have been a scandalous affirmation. While we are informed that Jesus is accompanied in his itinerant ministry by the twelve, who had been named back in Luke chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, here significantly more attention is given to the several women who traveled with him, including Mary Magdalene, who was the very first evangelist to proclaim the resurrection. These women of faith not only witness the ministry of Jesus, but also participate in it, through service from their own resources. So the NRSV, which is the translation I tend to use the most, uses the word provide here to translate the Greek word diakonun, which is the verb form of the word from which we derive the English word deacon. In other words, these women were actively engaged in diaconal servant ministry to, for, and with Jesus. Luke's word choice is not an accident. The importance of the joint ministry of the apostles and the deacons in the life of the church will be expanded upon in the book of Acts. Here we see it hinted at in the nature of the women's ministry as one of witness and service. They will eventually become the first witnesses of the resurrection and even before the apostles will be the first to express faith in the risen Lord. Again, as we saw in the Beatitudes, it is in the ministry with those who are among the marginalized that the kingdom of God may be found. So taking a look at that portion that we just read the commentary about in Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, soon afterwards, he, that's Jesus, went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's uh, steward, Cusa, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their resources. Now, it seems like a rather innocuous statement, but it's not. First of all, these are women who are participating in the ministry. They are, con they are contributing to the ministry. And they are named. Contributing or participating in the ministry and being named are two huge, unusual characteristics. Women were behind the scenes. They wouldn't even be mentioned. And in fact, frequently are not mentioned. Here, Luke mentions them. That they are participating in this ministry from their own means. Essentially, they're making it possible. And he names three of them. If the women are mentioned, they are faceless in this society. 
The women do not take front and center positions. Women are property. Women are behind the scenes actors. They are not acting front and center. Here, while what they're doing appears to be kind of behind the scenes, in reality, it's not. It's enough to get noticed, to be brought up and, and, and addressed. More attention is given to them in these verses than is given to the 12 in this section. And they are mentioned and they are specifically named. That is huge. First of all, we know who Mary Magdalene is. We've encountered her in, in the other Gospels. We, we will encounter her later on. Uh, she's a very important person, a very important player, um, Mary Magdalene is. Uh, Joanna, less so, and, uh, who, and yet she is, seems to have an important position because she's important enough to mention that she is the wife of Herod's steward, Cusa. Interesting. We don't know who that is. Apparently, Luke expected that the reader would know who that was. Mm -hmm. And Susanna, and many others, but three are named. So both of those factors just cannot be overlooked. That's important. And secondly, is the word that he uses, specifically chooses to use for what they're doing. Translated in the NRSV as provided. But it translates a Greek word that is the root from which the word deacon comes. A ministerial office. Now, some denominations have deacons as leaders, lay leaders in the church. And most of the denominations that have deacons, they're usually guys, aren't they? Other denominations use it as a term for an office of ministry, servant ministry, ministry of word and service. In the United Methodist Church, our deacons are ordained to ministries of word and service. They don't serve as the senior pastors of churches, but they are associates in churches. And they will never be a senior pastor. They will always be an associate. They do not have the authority to preside at the Eucharist, but they can assist, and they can preach, and they can teach, and they can lead the church in many ways. Uh, it is an ordained office of ministry. Here that word is specifically used of these women. And it will come up again in the Acts of the Apostles, that exact same word, for those who will assist the apostles in communion and in distributing the resources of the community to the people, because remember the apostles will complain about how they just have way too much to do, and so they choose deacons. And these are not just servants, I mean, that's what they are, they're servant ministers, but Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was a deacon in the Acts of the Apostles. And so these are important witnesses to Jesus. And, and specifically in regards to Mary Magdalene, very much so, because she's the first consistent between all four Gospels, the first witness of the resurrection. So, we see that anticipated here. This is very important, because women would have been marginalized, they would have been pushed to the edge, they would not have been included in the forefront of ministry. And here, Luke includes them. All right. Questions before we move forward? The next section is uh, deals with two, um, well, one powerful parable, and it's the message of faith shrouded in parables. It's the parable of the sower that's included here. Um, the parable of the sower defines faith as hearing, believing, 
responding, and persevering. Did you catch all of those? Hearing, believing, responding, and persevering. Anything less is in faith. To just hear the gospel is good, but it is insufficient. One must hear and believe. Hearing and believing, while also good, is also insufficient if one doesn't respond, if one doesn't put down roots and grow. And even if we do respond, if one does have roots, the challenge is to survive and grow amidst the competing interests of this life. True faith hears, believes, rejoices, responds, those are actually two sides of the same coin, rejoices, responds, and perseveres through the tough times. Jesus' concluding thought about bearing fruit with patient endurance challenges me continually. Rarely am I patient, and enduring with faith through life's distractions is always difficult. So that essentially is the summation of the parable of the sower. It's drawn from both the telling of the parable here uh, and also Jesus' interpretation of the parable, which, which we find over at verse 11. So let's take a look at his interpretation. We know, we know the elements of the parable of the sower. He, the sower sows the seeds, and some fall on one kind of ground, another falls on another kind of ground, another falls on another kind of ground. And then he gives this, um, this interpretation of it at verse 11. So go to verse 11 of chapter, Luke, of chapter 8 from Luke. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones on the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe only for a while and in a time of testing fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, these are the ones who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not in mature. But as for that in the good soil, these are the ones who, when they hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patient Endurance. So you see, that's Jesus' essential interpretation of the parable, which I kind of sketched out as being an illustration, frankly, of what faith is like when it comes to fruition in our lives and the challenges that confront us in our lives of faith. Because those challenges are real, they are critical, and they are problematic. Think about all the things that choke us off as we try to live as God would have us live, try to, try to exercise faith, try to be a people of faith, try to be a people consistent with what we have been called to believe. It can be tough to do that. And that's what the thorns are. And that's where most of us get caught. Most of us hear and believe and rejoice in that. It's, it's the thorns that can be so much trouble. It's the thorns. Then we go back and we take a look at a question that is articulated between the telling of the parable and Jesus' interpretation of it. With this parable in mind, we turn back to look at the question of the veiled message. The veiled message. And that's uh, covered in the, in the text in verses 9 through 10, 9 and 10, where they ask him about why he does uh, giving the message in parables. 
His response may leave us troubled. To others I speak in parables, so that looking they may not perceive, and listening they may not understand. We may question, why would Jesus wish to hide his message? Doesn't it need to be proclaimed for all to hear? Yes, it does. But ultimately, we must admit that hearing, perceiving, and understanding the gospel is truly a matter of spiritual comprehension. Not all are either ready or able to receive the good news, and certainly not at any given moment. Think about it for a second. There are parts and times in your life where you're more receptive to hearing what God has to say than other parts and times in your life. There are times in your life when the, uh, the cares of the world just pay, just are far more important to you. You don't have the time, you don't have the energy, you don't have the interest in hearing the gospel, in letting it form your life. And then, at some point, that things will change. And you'll suddenly be receptive to hearing. You'll be receptive to believing. But it won't happen for everybody at the same time, same place, same point. And one interpretation of Jesus here is that, quite frankly, it's veiled for those who aren't ready, who are not ready to believe. That still sounds strange, though, doesn't it? It sounds very, very weird. And, and, I, and I, kind of, I kind of address that in here. Only God gets to decide for whom the, kingdom, the secrets of the kingdom of God shall come. And as we have and will continue to see, God has decided to give those secrets to those who have faith. And I think that's the point here. It's not just a matter of believing. It's not just a matter of believing this stuff. It's a matter of how you apply it in your life. How do you live it? Are you willing to take the message of the gospel and place it in effect in your life so that it changes you and those around you? That's what it looks like when you're exercising faith, when you're making faith a verb. When you do that, then things change. You change. Others change. And until you're ready for that, why even bother listening? Why even bother trying to hear? Hence the parables. Now, the parables also are fabulous mnemonic devices for teaching. They're easy to remember. They last a very long time, and they were pretty common in the ancient world at that time. It's nothing new. Jesus didn't invent parables. Uh, they, the, the process of teaching by parables was a very, was a very common one. So that's, 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 nothing new. that's nothing new. But the importance of faith in hearing, believing, and then doing, responding, and then persevering in the doing, that, that is something that's dynamic. And while not unique to Jesus, is um, its importance, its critical importance, is unique. There are lots of religions, there, even Christianity elements of it, that say, well, it's important that you learn these things, just, just to learn them. But if it's going to be part of your life, if it's going to be your faith, if it's going to affect you and others, and it's not just an intellectual exercise, then it... it you're talking about something different. 
Let's read my commentary in this tiny little paragraph on top of the second page. This point is then illustrated, this point about faith and the importance of, of living by faith and the importance that not everybody is ready at the same moment, at the same time, in the same way to experience faith. This point is then illustrated by the appearance of Jesus' mother and siblings. His response might at first seem harsh, but it is in keeping with the essence of the message those who hear the word of God and do it. In other words, those who have, an act, have active faith are Jesus's family. In this way, Luke is telling the church that they are the family of God. Keep in mind, as you're reading the gospel, you're not just getting an account of the things that happened in Jesus's life. You are getting it filtered through the interpretive lenses of Luke the author of the gospel. And he is writing it for Theophilus, for the God lover, or for a fellow named Theophilus, and the church of which Theophilus is a part, the believers, the community of believers. Hence, he's writing these things so that they can believe, so that they can understand, so that they can apply them in their lives. And sometimes it's him reminding them, you are the family of God. Even when you've been rejected, and that's, by the way, a reality for them, as a, sometimes is a reality for us, that following Jesus sometimes has a huge price in terms of family rejection. And that was true then. It can be true today. He may have been addressing that point, at least in a sense. Okay, questions before we move forward? Because that all has essentially been review. <laughs> not, we'll pick it up with verse 22. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. They're sailing on Lake Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. So they put out, and while they were sailing, he fell asleep. A windstorm swept down on the lake. And by the way, that's not uncommon on the Sea of Galilee. Um, remember, it's below sea level, which sounds strange, but it is. It's a body of water that on the surface is below sea level. It's not the furthest below sea level. That's the Dead Sea. But it's below sea level, and it's in like a bowl. That's, it's mountains surrounding this, this bowl shape almost. And the winds that they come just right off the desert in Syria come right down into it and swirl around it and create a cyclonic effect which just can make for huge waves and it can come up very, very fast. It can come up very, very fast. And that's what happened here. A windstorm swept, windstorm swept down on the lake and the boat was filling with water. And they were in danger. They went to him and woke him up shouting, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? They were afraid and amazed and said to one another, who then is this? That he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. I mean, they've seen him heal. They've seen him forgive. They've seen him deliver people from demons. And now they see him 
speaking to the windstorm and calming the stormy sea. And it, 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 it amazes them. And his question to them, where is your faith? I mean, there's no question they believe that he's their master. He, they, they call him master, master. We are perishing. They come to him because they are perishing. It's not just get up, let's dive overboard and try to get to shore. They're waking him up for a specific reason. All right. And yet he says, where is your faith? Where is your faith? What kind of, to go back to the parable, what kind of seed are you? What kind of seed are the disciples here? Are they... Are they being choked right now? Uh-huh. They're being choked by the storm. That's not uncommon. It happens to us all the time. <laughs> happens to us all the time. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, and by the way, that's pretty impressive. I mean, he's doing two big no-nos. He's naked, and he's living amongst dead people. And that's just two things Jews don't do. So he's very unusual. Of course, he's got demons, and that explains it. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. <clears throat> For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wild. So these people have been trying to control him for quite a while and they couldn't do it. And Jesus sees him and essentially orders the demon to come out, the unclean spirit to come out, and it throws itself to the ground and screams out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. The demons know who he is. We've seen that already, they know who he is. They even identify him as such, son of the most high God. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. So here they are, they're trying to bargain with Jesus. Please don't make us go back. We don't want to go back. We don't want to go back. Hmm. Interesting. Now there were on the hillside, a large herd of swine that was feeding. And the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. I mean, you know, essentially roving trash processors. That's what these swine are. Jews don't eat them. They just, you just don't. They're unclean. And so, why not have the demons go live in them? And the Gentiles eat them. Gentiles eat them. Yeah, absolutely. It's good enough for Gentiles. You know, and I, I don't think, even though I adore bacon, I don't think I'd want to eat some that comes from some of these pigs, considering what they ate back then. All right. Mm, give me some bacon now, though. 
Uh, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Yeah, sure, go ahead. <laughs> it's kind of funny if you think uh-huh. about it. Please let us go and be in the bacon. Please, please, please. <laughs> now, that's, well, yeah, you can say it when you, when you feel tempted to eat that bacon. You can say, yeah, it's because they got demon in them. Eh? Yeah. Demon bacon. Yes, yum, yum. Mm-hmm. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Mm-hmm. They ended up in the abyss anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he tricked them. Mm-hmm. Jesus tricks them. Yeah, sure, you can go into the swine. Mm-hmm. And they go running down into the water and they drowned. Mm-hmm. Which is, and the abyss is, I mean, the, 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 the Jews tended to believe that that hell was in the abyss, in the waters down below. How do you get there? By diving into the water and drowning. <laughs> Jesus tricks them. <laughs> when the swine herders saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened. And when they wanted all that bacon, and when, and when no, they didn't. And when they these are Jews, remember. And when they had come to Jesus, they found the man, the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at Jesus's feet. Wow. So, this is a man they all know. He's been filled with demons. They've been trying to control him. They've been binding him. They've been binding him with chains and trying to keep him from hurting himself and others. And he's been breaking free and running off into the wilderness continually. This is a real problem. They know who he is. And they come. They hear that this has happened. So the people come out to see. And they see him sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed. Remember, he was naked. And in his right mind. <coughs> And they were afraid. You'd think they would be rejoicing. But they knew who this guy was. They knew he he was highly disturbed. And nothing they could do to control him. But Jesus was able to do it. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Interesting use. Remember, we, we looked earlier at the question of de- clearing of possession, delivering from possession, and healing, and how Luke often conflates exorcisms and healings, and they were seen as pretty much the same kind of thing, interchangeably so. And here we have an example of it perfectly presented, how he had been possessed by demons and had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them. What? For they were seized with great fear. I mean, he's powerful. He's powerful. They're terrified of him. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. So he didn't want to stay there. He'd been delivered by Jesus. He, he knows Jesus is a good thing. I, I wouldn't be surprised if I were if, if it were me. I mean, I'd be almost a little bit afraid that if Jesus leaves, they might come back. I'd rather stay with Jesus. Huh. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, 
Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. Did you catch that? Jesus tells him, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. Which, of course, is just a, a subtle, not so subtle, more like an anvil, uh, uh, <laughs> indication of whom Luke says Jesus is, is if you haven't already gotten it. He's God. Hmm, he's God. Okay, my commentary on this. The stormy sea and legion. While reading through these verses, I noticed a connection between the calming of the stormy sea on the one hand and the deliverance of the Gerasene demoniac. And the deliverance of the Gerasene demoniac on the other. In the story of the calming of the stormy sea, we find Jesus and his disciples crossing to the other side of the lake in a boat. Jesus has fallen asleep. A windstorm has arisen. And now the boat is in peril of sinking. The disciples go to wake Jesus with a loud cry. Their words indicate that they think they are doomed, and Jesus' response addresses their pessimistic outlook at its source. After calming the sea, Jesus asks them, where, where is your faith? As we all know, faith can be easily shaken by circumstances. This, this story, closely following the parable of the sower, illustrates how quickly thorns can rise up to choke off even the faith of those closest to Christ. I mean, you really can't get any closer. Than the twelve. Note also the response of the disciples to Jesus. They are both afraid and in wonder at what Jesus had done. He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Even more will obey him soon. Back on land in the country of the Gerasenes, Jesus encounters and delivers a man from the many demons that were infesting him. They identified themselves as legion and begged not to be cast into the abyss, but instead to, part, to depart the man and enter a herd of, pig, of pigs, not pegs, pigs. God, how did I miss that? Jesus allows them to do this, and the pigs respond by dashing into the lake where they drown. In other words, they end up in the abyss anyway and the man is now freed from their possession. Indeed, the next paragraph depicts him as sitting at Jesus' feet, and this sight terrifies the people. The power involved in this deliverance is beyond their faith to grasp. But the delivered man grasps it and accepts it and begs Jesus to let him follow him. Jesus tells the man to go home and declare to all what God has done. These stories speak about fear and evil and the power of Jesus over both. Together they call forth our response of faith. In the first, water threatens to sink the boat, but faith calls for trust in Jesus. In the second, Jesus' authority over the demons is as absolute as was his authority over the storms. And in both, evil and disfaith are drowned by Jesus. In the first, by, by calming the storms, and in the second, by vanquishing the demons. In neither case, does evil prevail? And in both cases, faith is proclaimed. The faith of the disciples, uh, frighteningly given, afraid and in wonderment at what they've seen. The faith of this man who's been delivered, 
who wants to follow Jesus and ends up witnessing to Jesus far and wide by telling what had happened to him. An event that cannot be denied because everybody around knew its truth. So essentially the Stormy Sea and Legion, these two stories, are interconnected and they do reflect the prior section on faith being active. Hearing and believing, rejoicing in it, responding, which is an action, and persevering. The challenges are there. Like the disciples, we will fail to, the thorns will cause us trouble and sometimes we won't persevere. But Jesus can overcome even that. Questions, thoughts? It's kind of interesting in a way that most of the previous miracles that Jesus did, he commanded them not to say anything. And, uh, but he completely switches things around and instead pick up your, your, your self and follow me. He says, don't follow me. Don't, don't follow me. Go tell everybody what God did for you. Which is a real switch. Yeah, it is a switcheroo, isn't it? Um, it, that may also remind us that uh, there's really no formulaic response. I mean, we create formulas all the time for how to respond to Jesus, but in reality, Jesus doesn't ma- demand the exact same thing from everybody. Instead, the circumstances and the setting and where you are at any given moment will determine not only can you hear, can you believe, can you respond, will you persevere, but also how you will respond. Response will vary. This man who had been delivered of demons could do the best thing, the best thing he could do, the best response he could have would be to go tell everybody what Jesus did. For other people, no, they need to be quiet, they need to keep following Jesus, they need to learn, they need to listen, they need to watch, they need to experience instead of sharing it. It kind of reinforces the notion that there is that faith and belief is not an ipso facto kind of thing. If you do this, then this happens. No, it's not. <laughs> the faith, belief resulting in faith has multiple kinds of outcomes. There's not just it's not, the, the Christian faith, faith in general, is not a cookie cutter production where everything is the same. We often decry the nature of denominations and say we ought to not have denominations, we ought to just ought to be one. I agree with that and I also disagree with it. Um, I'll use my favorite illustration about denominationalism in its positive sense. Who likes vanilla ice cream? Who likes chocolate ice cream? Peach? Cookies and cream? Strawberry? Uh, coffee? <coughs> Not everybody had their hand up the whole time through except me because I'm an ice cream junkie. Not everybody had their hand all the, up all the I mean, you could go through the, you could go through the, 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 um, uh, the ice cream section at Berkshire's and search through all of the bluebell selections and you'll find something that, uh, mint, green mint, I don't particularly care for mint tea. Mint, mint ice cream, but some people do. Chocolate mint. 
No, thank you. No, but see, somebody likes chocolate mint. Somebody does not like. I don't like chocolate mint. But that triple, that triple fudge chocolate with the, the uh, oh man, talk, talk about good stuff. Well, there are lots of different kinds of ice cream. They're all ice cream, but there are lots of different kinds of ice cream. Some like chocolate, some like vanilla, some like peach, some like strawberry, some like cookies and cream, some like coffee, and that's a good thing. Well, similarly, there are lots of different ways of being Christian. There are Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians and Disciples of Christ and Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox and Lutherans and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. And to the extent that they are all ice cream, that's a great thing because there are different ways and different styles of being Christian. And not every one is attuned to the same kind. And I think that's a good thing. That's a good thing. The problem is when one ice cream says the other ice cream is an ice cream. When chocolate sits over here and says mint ice cream, mint chocolate ice cream isn't really ice cream. Sorry, it is mint chocolate, uh, chocolate ice cream. You're wrong. <laughs> All right. That's one of the problems we get into by saying, oh, this is the best ice cream. The other ice cream isn't worth having at all. You almost throw it away. Throw away ice cream? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Give it to me. <laughs> I mean, that's one of my favorite blends most recently has been the strawberry vanilla blend that, that, that uh, I can, you can find at the grocery store here. I mean, that, that's just some lovely stuff. <laughs> wow. And vanilla bean, anything vanilla bean, I just think is fabulous. The point is that there are many different flavors and styles, and that's a good thing. So while we can sometimes get down on denominationalism, and rightfully so, there are elements of why it's come about that are not necessarily bad. That's kind of what you're talking about there. There's not just any one way. From this story, then, we move on to really the pinnacle of the entire chapter, which is the two daughters of faith. It's also sometimes known as the miracle on the way to a miracle. <clears throat> now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. Now, this is a different crowd, probably. The crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Just then, there came a man named Jairus, a leader of the synagogue. This is really high muckety-muck. He fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. Now, this is one of those guys that earlier was sitting back going, who's this Jesus having dinner with tax collectors and sinners? All right, this is one of them leaders. And that's what it says here, a leader of the synagogue. Well, things have changed in his life. He fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. You know, earlier, you, you wouldn't want Jesus to, you know, these Pharisees and leaders of the synagogue don't want Jesus coming to their house. After all, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Ugh. Or if he comes to your house, you, you sit there and you judge him about this woman who's washing his feet with her tears and dried it with her hair. For he had an only daughter. Here's why. For he had an only daughter about 12 years old who was dying. It's amazing how we'll overlook things that would otherwise bother us when we're desperate. As he went, the crowds pressed in on him. Now there was a woman 
who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. Interesting. The girl he's going to heal is 12. The woman's been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. And though she had spent all she had on physicians, well, we know what that's like, no one could cure her. She had come up, she, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his clothes, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Now this woman's suffering from hemorrhages. That's female problems, right? Probably pretty awful. Pretty awful. 12 years, a long time. Now think about it. Hemorrhaging, that means blood's coming out, mm -hmm. which makes her ritually unclean. Mm -hmm. and no one wants to have you around if you're ritually unclean in this society and culture. And not only that, but the whole life, and this is a crowded group, so how could she get through that crowd without touching people? And then she has the temerity to reach out and touch a holy man like Jesus. Then Jesus asked, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds around you surround you and press in on you. <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? Who touched you? But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I noticed that power had gone out from me. Hmm. When the woman, that sounds, that's a really strange statement to make, isn't it? Mm -hmm. When the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That's interesting, isn't it? Because she was healed without Jesus intentionally. Yeah. He just knew the power had gone out yeah. and she was already healed. Yeah. It says that she was healed when she did it. And he says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the leader's house. We're going to come back to that. Let's just keep going. While he was still speaking, someone came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Oh, gosh. Do not trouble the teacher any longer. When Jesus heard this, he replied, do not fear, only believe and she will be saved. Yeah, keep going. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. They were all weeping and wailing for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and called out, Child, get up! Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he ordered them to tell no one what had happened. So in other words, the statement outside that she's asleep was for public consumption. 
Hmm. There's more of that secret bit there. Okay, let's get my commentary. We close chapter 8 with two of the most famous healing accounts to be found in the Synoptic Gospels. Remember, the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first is sometimes called the miracle on the way to a miracle and involves a woman who had been plagued with hemorrhages for 12 long years. She's another marginalized woman shoved to the edge of society by those who feared her affliction. And yet, her faith leads her through the crowd to touch Jesus' garment. Instantly, Jesus knows what she has done and confronts her, affirming her faith. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Note how these words echo those found in Luke 7.50. Luke 7.50 reads, reads, And he said to the woman, and this is the woman who had been washing Jesus' feet, drying them with her hair, kissing them, and anointing them with oil while Jesus was at dinner with that Pharisee in the Pharisee's house. And the Pharisee was questioning him and saying, oh, Jesus can't really be a prophet because if he knew what kind of woman she was. Well, anyway, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This echo is not an accident. The word healed in chapter 8, verse 48, is the exact same word in Greek, sozo, as the word saved in chapter 7, verse 50. The word in Greek is the same. The sentence in Greek is identical. It's only the context which tells us then the first one in chapter 7, it's saved. And in the second one, it's healed. Mm. The second healing is that of Jairus' daughter. The terms used indicate that she is about 12 years old. And she had been alive for as long as the woman with the hemorrhages had been suffering. Now she is dead. Yet despite this, Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be saved. <laughs> The word translated believe in, in Greek is, is the Greek word for faith in its verb formation, pistuo. And it is found in the aorist active indicative. That's the parts of speech that it's in. In other words, it is a command, the imperative. It is a command calling forth an action of faith, a specific action of faith from the girl's parents, the aorist is makes it punctiliar or precise. It's not just some general belief. It's specifically on this matter, in this time, in this place, in this way, exercise faith, pistuo. Only believe and she will be saved. The word translated believe is the Greek word for faith in its verb formation, pistuo, and is found in the aorist active imperative. In other words, it is a command calling forth an action of faith from the girl's parents. They are simply to trust in Jesus. Yes, she is dead. Still, trust in Jesus. Likewise, while she is dead, the promise is that she will be saved. Again, the Greek word being translated is sozo. So in the woman who was forgiven, 
uh, as she had washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair and kissed them and anointed them. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Here, then the, the woman who touched Jesus, your faith has healed you. And now again, faith is identified as saving her, this girl who is dead. Again, the Greek word being translated is sozo. Saved, healed, two sides of the same coin. The message is clear. Faith both saves and it heals. Again, healing and salvation have everything to do with each other and with faith. They are what faith looks like when it is manifested in our lives. And it is what the kingdom of God looks like when it is present in our midst. So that, that word, saved, healed, it's active again and again and again. It's in chapter 7, it's in chapter 8. It's used in both of these daughters of faith stories. The woman who was healed of the hemorrhage, same word used, and faith. Here, the parents of the girl who's now dead, Jairus' daughter is dead, Jairus and his wife's faith in Jesus. And his statement, she will be saved, she will be healed, is, um, is the point and the focus. Questions? A 12-year-old girl in that culture would be considered an adult. Husband high. Husband high. Ready to, ready to sell off to a man. <laughs> now, it sounds terrible, but that's exactly how they viewed it. Yeah. You could even view the you could even view her as an asset that's now in danger. <laughs> that sounds terrible, but to be blunt, that is what she is in their culture. She's an asset. She works in the house, she keeps the house, and she's ready to be sold off to a man. But that's why they, they told the parents to have faith. They didn't talk about her. No, it was the parents. She's 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 a woman. Jairus is really the focus here, even more so than the mother. Need to have faith here. She's going to come back. Questions, thoughts, observations? I want to say this. Yes, ma'am. I'm trying to be careful. <laughs> ah, just say it. Oh, just uh -oh. Shoot, shoot from the hip. Shoot from the hip, Mary Lou. Okay. Every child does not live when the parents have faith. That's true. That's true. And, um, That's true. Kind of hard uh, for them to accept that way. And yeah, it's kind of hard to hear this kind of story and realize that even if you have faith, you don't always get this. Right. In this circumstance, yes, but we don't always get that. That's There's also Jesus there. Yeah. You could make, number, yes. Number one guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Jesus is always with us. You can make that yeah. claim too. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the tough part there. That, no, that's the tough part. So, verse, yes, sir. Well, I, yes, sir. Verse 56, okay. But back to the demon guy. So when you go tell the village, go tell everybody God. Yeah, that comparison, verse 56. How come you're not telling me why? 
Her parents were astounded, but he ordered them to tell no one what had happened, as opposed to... Um, Verse, verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. So that's okay, but, but, not, right not, but not here. Curious. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we, we mentioned this before. Not every response needs to be the same. And apparently... This man, as a personal witness to what Jesus had done for him, could have a greater impact than the kind of impact Jesus wanted by going away and speaking about what God had done, about what Jesus had done for him. Whereas here, it would be better not to. Would any of that go back to the fact that he needed a little solitude and not to be mobbed everywhere he goes? Well, he was being mobbed everywhere he went, that's true. Um, but I, Jesus doesn't normally do those kinds of things out of self-interest to try to tell them, oh, don't tell them about it because I need to get away and get some vacation. I don't think that's necessarily, a, it's, a, it's a good thought. I mean, maybe I don't think so, but that, that's, that's a tough one. It seems as though Jesus slings back and forth between telling and not telling or save this one for later. When he comes down from Mount Tabor after the transfiguration, he tells the disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, all right, don't tell anybody about this until after I'm raised from the dead. <laughs> I mean. Do you think he knows how much people may be able to believe or tolerate? I mean, raising, from, casting out demons is wonderful, but raising from the dead, that's even, you know, that's, know. That's, even, that's beyond... That casting out demons is un, is uncom, is very common. Uh-huh. I mean, there were exorcists in yeah. the Jewish faith. But raising raising people from, from the, the dead, dead is yeah. not so much. So. Like he says, he asks, you know, who do you say I am? But don't say until yeah. after the resurrection. It could be that this is too much of too an indicator. Uh-huh. That could be that it's too much of an indicator. Maybe saying that you know, this is rare. Yeah. Yeah, that's another way to look at it. Mm-hmm. This is not something that you can depend upon. Mm-hmm. When do you think, if Jesus had foreknowledge of events, when do you think that began in the life of Jesus? Was you know, He was partly human, partly divine. Oh, no. <laughs> You're not going to get me into that heresy. <laughs> <laughs> The, the official doctrine of the church historic has, is, is that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, 100% in both sides at all times and in all places and all ways, from the instant of conception to the instant of his death and resurrection. Now, what does that mean? And how does that function? Um, a human brain cannot, con- cannot contain infinite knowledge. So for, God, for Jesus to be omnipotent, omniscient, at the same time, inside the confines of a human brain, is beyond human conception. I don't think that's really intended. The basic question is where, you know, to focus in on what your question was, is when did foreknowledge begin with, begin with Jesus? As he matured as a human being and became capable of conceiving and understanding and dealing with this kind of stuff is when this kind of insight and enlightenment would come upon him. 
whether or not you're going to call it foreknowledge or ultimate knowledge or infinite knowledge, I don't know what that means. I guess the, uh, the main point is that Jesus, in becoming human, uh, took on the limitations of humanity. By pouring himself into a human being, yeah. God took, accepted limitations. Yeah. Uh, the, well, I mean, look at God's characteristics. God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Well, if you've poured yourself into a specific being called Jesus of Nazareth, you're specifically located in one, lo in one place. How can you then be omnipresent? Um, good question. That's one of those struggles. Uh, the same is true for omniscience in a, in a brain that is limited by the number of neurons that it has. And omnipotence. Of course, what does it mean to be omnipotent? What does that word mean? All power. All power. Omnipotent. Capable of doing all things. Omnisentient is all-knowing. And all, omnipresence is obvious. Um, and those three definitions of God's nature has always had people kind of struggling. And there are, there are people who don't believe that God is omnipotent, omniscient, or omnipresent. Well, most would agree that God's probably omnipresent. But even some people, well, good Buddhists believe God is omnipresent because everything is God. Uh, no, that's a good one. Um, and it's philosophical theology that postdates the New Testament as well. Uh, the Bible talks about God in many different ways that assumes God can do whatever God wants. Mm -hmm. And that God knows everything God needs to know. And yet, Jesus is depicted as doing only those things that the Father does. And Jesus is depicted as not knowing some things. Of that time and of that season of the second coming, not even the Son of Man knows, but only Father in Heaven knows. I mean, that's what he says. So you can, you can look at it as Jesus sharing God's omniscience, but not necessarily enfolding or encompassing all of it at any given moment. Man, you can go around and around and around on that one if you want. The ancient heresies of the church are often come in conjunction with the nature of Jesus. Is Jesus fully human? Is Jesus fully divine? What does it mean to say those two? My favorite heresy of all time, the one I would be if I could be one, is Apollinarianism, which is that Jesus had a human body and a divine soul. Well, that kind of sounds neat, don't it? Think about it. If he has a human body and a divine soul, that means that he's human and divine, right? Yeah, but it means he doesn't have a human soul and that his body is, is just human, it's not divine. And therefore, what matters, what does his blood do for anything if it's just human blood except and not also was, divine? when he was resurrected, he had a divine blood. Oh, so, the, so it was the transformation. <laughs> that's, the, that's where Apollinarianism starts to have real trouble in seeing, in, in trying to subdivide the human, the physical from the spiritual. Um, it's a wonderful, I mean, it's a fun to deal with and struggle with heresy. I like it. Personally, I wish I could sit on it, but the church has said, historically said, that that's a no-no. That his body is also divine, and his soul is also human, as well as divine. That he's fully divine and fully human in all aspects of each. 
And the things that he does as God, he does by virtue of being God. And the things that he does as a human being, he does by virtue of being a human being. And the human being experiences the divine, and the divine experiences the human. Hence, you can say that God was born and God died. Because he experiences both, God experiences both through the humanity of Jesus. Plus, you can say that the, a human is all-powerful and all-knowing. He experiences that through being divine, not by virtue of his humanity. What other questions? There's just so many that come to mind. No, no, no. No! Don't do that to me. I think you have a good answer for it. On the cross, he said, why have you forsaken me? Oh, yeah. A very appropriate question for this week. Um, Will you just explain I, I did. I did in a sense. In one way, what is the source of that? What's he quoting on the cross? Does anybody know? Does anybody know the passage of scripture that Jesus is quoting on the cross? He's quoting a psalm. Yeah. 22. 22. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Very good. He's quoting the 22nd Psalm. Jane talked about this Sunday. So psalm 22, <laughs> verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken yeah. me? Psalm 22, verse 1. Why are you so far from helping, from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night in find no rest. One of the th keep on reading this. This is amazing because it describes him. Now, but it's a human response. of course it's a human response. Mm -hmm. And he's quoting scripture, which is something mm -hmm. that you would do anyway right. if you're a person of faith. So, yeah, he's quoting scripture when he says that. But he's also applying it to himself because that's what it felt like. And of course, you then have to deal with the question of, well, what is this uh, God in human form, and is there a difference between the Father and the Son? And then you get into Trinitarian theology, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit stuff. And boy, we can go around on that one. Uh, my dad kind of blew me away, though, when I was in high school because he said, you know, everybody gets all hung up on this Trinity stuff, you know, one plus one plus one. It's not one plus one plus one, it's one times one times one, which is equal one. And when he said that, I went, oh, God. <laughs> it's not one plus one plus one equal one. It's one times one times one equal one, and that's a true statement. Mm -hmm. And that kind of blew me away. It kind of made it helped me to see mm -hmm. that there's more than one way to look at these questions. And you get stuck with the normal way of thinking about well, how can Jesus be fully divine and fully human at the same time? How can there be a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and all be one? Well, that's one way. Three distinct things: one and one in one. Not added, but multiplied, equal one. And if you can start thinking differently about these traditional kinds of questions, sometimes you can get yourself around it. And, and Dad didn't invent that. He picked that one up from Augustine. <laughs> he didn't know it, but he picked that up from St. Augustine, who talked about the Trinity as a matter of multiplication, not addition. So, I mean, this is it's a, concept, it's a fascinating concept. And struggling with it, I can't explain the Trinity. I can't explain Jesus's the the the, the doctrinal term is Jesus's consubstantial humanity and divinity. <laughs> Jesus is consubstantially human and divine at the same time, and a hundred percent. And how that's possible is beyond me. But I can make all the doctrinal statements that affirm it, and I struggle with it because most Christians 
are Apollinarians or Arians or, or, or Nestorian. Most, most Protestants are Nestorians, which say that Jesus started being God at a certain point after his birth and stopped being God when he died on the cross. The body of Jesus did. Well, that's a heresy. <laughs> so it's a really big one in the life of the church, but most Protestants are Nestorians because um, they don't want to talk about Mary mean, being the mother of God. That's the reason why they take that position. Well, oh. what, do you, what do you mean Mary's the mother of God? Well, is, is Jesus in her womb God, incarnate in human flesh? Uh-huh. So she's the mother of God. Well, she's the bearer of God. And if you go back and look in the Greek, Theotokos, which means God-bearer, is the title that is usually translated into English as mother of God. But really it means bearer of God into this world. Hmm. Aren't we all supposed to be Theotokai? Bearers of God to the world? To share Jesus with others? She shared Jesus with us. Shouldn't we share Jesus with others? Yeah, we should. That's what I said at Christmas Eve. I said we're all called to share Jesus, to give birth to Jesus in the womb of our hearts. Well, likewise, Jesus then shares God with us by being God with us. <coughs> wow. And then when he dies, who's dying on that cross? God? Well, yeah. The human. Well, if it's just a human, if it's just a human, that's that's Nestorianism again. Oh, well. If it's just the human part, or possibly Apollinarianism, if it's if it's just the human part that's dying, then what good does it do do us? I mean, unless there's some connection between the human and the divine that is experiencing death, and that is generally how the church has struggled with that one. How does God experience death? How does something that is infinite and eternal and by its very nature cannot cease to be experience death? Well, by being one of us and then actually dying. In subsets. In subsets. Okay, now that's my dad talking again. In subsets. Dad, dad used the term transforms to talk about God and Jesus and Jesus dying here and his being dead and God experiencing it and yet and, and and yet and yet not being dead. And it was that characteristic of not being dead mm -hmm. that then brings Jesus back to life in his resurrection. Mm -hmm. Wow. Intersection of subsets. Intersection of subsets. That's the term he used. Very good. Now, and then, of course, there's the question of, well, how do you deal with concepts like eternity and all sorts of other stuff? We'll talk about that later. Stuff, uh, all this stuff is, is fun. And guess what? It's all rooted in questions just like these from the Bible. Because you have to start thinking and determining, well, how do you understand these events relative to what we know about who Jesus is? Why would he tell, be a secret on this and not be a secret on that? And how in the world do those demons know that he's the son of the most high God? And they use the term of him. How do they know that? And if God forsake him, forsake him while believing him, what would he do to me? Yeah, if God's, gonna, if God's going to forsake the one about whom he said, yeah. you are my son and whom you am I am well, in him I am well pleased, what's he going to do to me? <laughs> That's, and the answer to that question requires you to start breaking down the difference between the father and the son mm -hmm. and look at the divine behind both to recognize that it's not just the Father giving his Son, it's the Father living in the Son giving himself. Which is the basis for redemption. Yes. 
And it's not, we often talk about, well, Jesus paid the price for, I use it all the time, Jesus paid the price for our sins. Yes, he did. But it's far more than that. It's God expressing God's love for us by standing in our place, by taking the hit that we have merited for ourselves, by, by showing ultimate love by laying down his life for his friends, as he says in John. And, and that's where that Trinity concept starts to really break down and you really have trouble with it when you get to that point because we've reached into that economy of the Trinity that, that, is, that doesn't work well with those three persons bit because we're talking about the motivations and functions behind it. And you get stuck. You can get yourself in trouble in any one of those. Uh, I mean, there's standard modalism is one of the ways which most people think about the Trinity, and that's that God has uh, three faces. And when you experience God as as a, 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 a creator, you're dealing with God the Father. When you experience God as redeemer, you're dealing with God the Son. And when you experience God in God's comforting presence, then you're dealing with the Holy Spirit. And it's just different masks to God, who's kind of behind going, okay, today I'm going to be... Jesus, and then tomorrow I'm going to be the Creator, Father, and then the next day I want to be the Holy Spirit, and He puts up Casper. I mean, we 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 do that. We we, we do that. We, we do it. He doesn't. But God, that's just—it's a failure on our part to comprehend the reality of the persons of the Trinity as being distinct from each other, and yet the same. And and it's what gets us into trouble. Gets me into trouble all the time when you realize that. Well, I, I, you hear it when, when people trying to be inclusive say, and when they do the Trinity, say, God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Well, does that mean that the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ aren't God? They mean Father. They mean the first person of the Trinity. They mean the Creator, but more so because Jesus is the creative agency through whom the first person of the Trinity created. They mean the Father. They mean the parental deity. You want to be inclusive? Say Mother. I don't care. It, it, the point is, is that this is the essence and nature of God and experience of God who is the one who creates, who fashions, who forms. As opposed to or in conjunction with the nature and experience of God who redeems, who is, who is present and transforming. As opposed to the essence and nature of God who, is, who relates those two to us. Augustine, when, huh? when, when you feel a closeness, uh-huh. you, you could say it's the Holy Spirit. Let's say a, a spiritual moment. Yes. You, you could interpret it any way you want to, but it's God. It's God, and generally it's God known through the works of Christ communicated to us via the Holy Spirit. That's how a lot of people will talk about it. And it works. Politically correct. Huh? Politically, politically, politically correct, yes. That's exactly right. <laughs> Okay, we're way over done and, and, and finished, but uh, so stick that fork in because it is done. But, uh, but yeah, enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Next that week we'll pick good. up with Chapter 9. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries.
Copyright 2015 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.